Hi, and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Joining us today is retired squadron leader Bob Wheeler. Bob was a C-130 loadmaster and is now retired and living in Queensland. Today we'll look at the first foray into a combat environment for C-130As by looking at how 36 squadrons supported Confrontazi. I'm your host, Bill Kuralakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years in the Canadian Air Force and Royal Australian Air Force, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast series is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in 2024. Before we begin, I'll introduce our guest, Bob. Many thanks for coming on the show. I was particularly keen to have you join us here today, given that you flew C-130As during Confrontazi. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Bill. I joined the RAF as a junior equipment administrative trainee, age 15, in 1955. Specialised in explosives, storage, transport and demolition, progressing to the rank of sergeant in 1961. At the time, sergeants from equipment categories were invited to apply for loadmaster training. I was selected and undertook number six loadmaster course in 1962, thus beginning my association with the A-model C-130 aircraft. I flew in that role from 1962 to 1966, logging 2,100 hours of flying time before I was appointed to a commission. As an air movements officer at Darwin, from 1967 to 1970. After a couple of staff officer postings in Canberra and Melbourne, I elected to take early retirement after nearly 21 years' service to take up a position in the regeneration of Darwin after Cyclone Tracy. I guess you left Darwin a couple of years before Tracy hit. Of interest there, Bob, is that you were commissioned, so you were wearing a Loadmaster Brevet and you were an officer. Tell us about being one of the very first to wear a Loadmaster Brevet as an officer. A number of the early Loadmasters were, in fact, signalers, and they were commissioned at the time they were Loadmasters, so I can't say that I was the first commissioned Loadmaster. But in my last flights as a pilot officer before going back to officer training school, well, I guess you would have been one of the very first then. Maybe maybe the first one to actually wear the brevet because the first course, I don't believe, actually had a brevet. No, the brevet wasn't issued until uh, 1964. Uh, that was when we first uh, had our L brevets. I was the first commissioned officer to wear the L brevet, which caused a bit of uh, comment around the place. <laughs> can imagine. And, and it still would today if that was the case. However, there are several loadmasters that have been commissioned since then, although actually having flown as an officer loadmaster would be a very rare thing. Just a, a little aside, when I was commissioned, we flew up to Williamtown and Stan Clark was the aircraft captain. And at the time, we were having a bit of a fight with the fighter pilots at Williamtown because there was a flight line kitchen that had been established and they objected to the NCO aircrew going into the flight line kitchen. But eventually it was won over and they were, was, they were told it was the flight line kitchen, not just an additional officer's mess. But uh, we flew up to Williamtown on the uh, Sunday. As I was an officer, my accommodation was with the officers, of course. We walked into the officer's mess and there were a lot of fighter pilots there having a Sunday morning drink. And Stan announced in a very loud voice, We've just brought our loadmaster in for a drink. 
you know, which struck horror among the fathers. <laughs> Very good. Must have been a proud moment for you. Yeah. Stan even reminded me of that many years later when I caught up with him. <laughs> That's a good story. All right, let's set the scene for today's topic. When the C-130A was first acquired, the Federation of Malaya was comprised of most Malayan states in the Malaya Peninsula. By the early 1960s, the Malayan Emergency, which was a response to communist insurgency, was basically over, and in late 1962, the British Cobalt Commission recommended the amalgamation of a Malaya, Singapore, North Borneo, Sarawak, and Brunei to form Malaysia. Indonesia opposed this initiative by arming insurgents in Borneo and by conducting combat operations along its border with Malaysian Borneo. This conflict was dubbed the Borneo Revolt and was also commonly known as Confrontasi. Bob, what can you tell us about the atmosphere at that time in terms of dealing with Indonesia and Australian views about Indonesia? Well, we're well aware that the political tensions were very high at the time. We had been tasked under the United Nations to take a medical team into West New Guinea in support of Australian Army medical team there. We were met by Indonesian paratroopers rather than the United Nations forces and uh, were a little concerned until the United Nations forces turned up. Australia was still training Indonesian Defence Force officers at that time. And in January of 64, we were on a regular battle at the Yvonne Sea Courier and were tasked to pick up some Indonesian officers from Jakarta. However, while we were in Singapore, the political situation had deteriorated and a message was sent to Changi for us to cancel the Jakarta stop. But it was never relayed to us. Flight Lieutenant Fred Scott, an RAF exchange officer, was the aircraft captain. When we landed at Jakarta, we were surrounded by armed Indonesians. We were confined to the aircraft except for Fred, who was taken to the Ops Centre. Before he left, he exchanged his RAF cap for a borrowed Australian one, as the Brits were less popular than we were. We eventually resumed our flight to Darwin without the Indonesian passengers when met by relieved Australian authorities. Interesting times, Bob. That uh, RAF exchange officer sure had his wits about him putting on the Aussie cap. Go bit on. of self-preservation there. <laughs> bit of self-preservation, exactly, yeah. Right, I'll keep going. In keeping with the British and Australian strategy of forward defence, the immediate response was the deployment of elements of the Far East Strategic Reserve, the acronym for that is FESR, supported by Australian and New Zealand Air Forces and eventually Australian Ground Forces. The FESR was a UK-led brigade comprised of British, Australian and New Zealand forces stationed in Malaya. Although Australian ground forces didn't deploy to Borneo until 1965, one of the consequences of this involvement was that British elements of the FESR were inserted by Australian C-130s. And Bob, my understanding is you flew a bunch of those missions. Tell us what you did. Well, from July 64 through to February 66, I was part of six missions into Tuao, four into Labuan, three to Cebu, three to Kuching, and one to Kota Baru. Tuao was an interesting place as one side of the bay was Malaysian, the other Indonesian, with the missile and gun batteries situated there. On one occasion at Labuan, we made a hasty departure when the Indonesian gunboat approached our location. So, Bob, there were some threats there. What kind of training did you have to deal with those threats? There was no specific training under those types of conditions that we'd had at that stage. So how did you approach the airfields? Did you do anything special to try and avoid being seen or being shot at? 
We had done some low-level approaches over water when training with paratroops previously, so we used that same tactic and came in low-level to the airfield from the coastal side, thus avoiding detection for as long as we could. That's pretty smart stuff, Bob. Did you come in at, say, 100 feet or 200 or 500? Around 500 feet to start off with and then uh, even less than that at times. Very good. That's smart tactics. At the end of the day, the less time you can give somebody with a gun to look at you, the less time they've got to aim and shoot and acquire you. So hats off to your crews. Another direct consequence was that C-130s could no longer fly over Indonesia on their way to Butterworth. The normal path for a C-130 transiting to Butterworth was to fly out of Darwin and then over Indonesia to Butterworth. By having to avoid Sumatra and Java, C-130s amended their routing to be via Western Australia, Cocos Island, and then around the north trip of Sumatra. Bob, that must have made for some very long days. Certainly did. Uh, it was a long day from Richmond across to West Australia for a start and then overnight there and then out to Cocos where we refuelled and uh, around the top of Indonesia and back into Malaysia. I've got a quote from Ian Granny, Granny being his nickname, Gordon, who later became an Air Commodore. And he said, and this is a quote, Everyone knew that Butterworth was almost behind us, and it was terribly frustrating to be flying in what seemed to be the wrong direction for hours and hours. As we approached the turning points, the temptation to cut the corner became stronger and stronger. It was usually just about then that our radar lit up with the interference from the radars on the Indonesian anti-aircraft guns. The bastard had positioned guns right on the tip of the island to keep us honest. Do you remember those days, Bob? Do you recall the front-end crew talking about that radar? We certainly were well aware that they were there and uh, we took great care to make sure that we didn't stray into any of the Indonesian airspace. Pretty wise move. We wouldn't have wanted to test their metal, right? That's right. Bob, what was it like going into Cocos in those days? It must have been pretty rudimentary. Well, Cocos had no Air Force facilities there, but at the time, Qantas was still operating through to South Africa using Cocos as a staging base. So there was a shell depot there for our refuelling. A couple of times we had aircraft have to do engine changes there when we've uh, run into problems. Must have been pretty hot and sweaty for the techos doing engine changes in Cocos. That's right. While the techos were doing the uh, engine change, the shell man used to take us fishing. <laughs> Very good. Uh, as Bob mentioned, there were threats in the area in Borneo, and it's probably pretty obvious, but the movement of combat forces by air into a threat environment entails a level of risk to the aircraft. When risk like that is present, the preference for inserting forces is usually to airland them because it's more efficient than airdrop in terms of cargo capacity, and it's safer for the troops and equipment. However, landing puts aircraft and crews at risk. The RAF crews back in the early 1960s had no self-protection equipment and only those rudimentary tactics that Bob talked about to help them avoid attack from air or ground fire. Bob, what can you tell us about any other sort of things that you did for self-preservation? So, for example, arming yourself with weapons or protecting yourself inside the airplane. And did you do any training in terms of escape and evasion? There was no weapons carried in those days. And uh, the aircraft protection was non-existent, really. However, we all underwent training at the Canungra Jungle Training School where we learned escape and evasion tactics and survival methods. We did practice some low-level flying, as I mentioned earlier. We used those tactics to our own labyrinth. Well, those flights into Borneo and other areas that were involved with that confrontation 
started way back on the 3rd of December 1962 when 36 Squadron C-130A crews operating out of Butterworth commenced insertions of RAF, British Army, Gurkhas, and Malayan forces and assorted equipment from Singapore to the British territories on the island of Borneo. For 15 days, three crews, captained by Squadron Leader Hoare, Flying Officer Harmon, and Flight Lieutenant de Rufignac, flew sorties to Borneo while under those threats. To mitigate the chance of being shot, those crews and the crews that Bob was on and other ones flew those basic combat profiles. Some people Bob, I believe, did carry sidearms, and that's some information I got through other sources. There were parachutes available sometimes in the cargo compartment. What can you tell us about the parachutes, Bob? Generally, there are only two parachutes in the cargo compartment, and these were a standard fit to the aircraft carried at all times. Normally, they were used by the loadmasters when they had any of the para doors or the rear door and ramp open in flight. The early flights did carry additional parachutes for the crew, but this was a rare occasion. That's a good thing they didn't have to use them, Bob. It would be uh, be a pretty interesting day to be trying to put a parachute on while the airplane's in such a state that that you feel the need to put the parachute on. That's right. (laughs) And my understanding, Bob, is that some of the crews padded their seats just in case something came up through the bottom of the aircraft. Rudimentary armor, such as putting a telephone book or flight manual under the seat cushions. Did you ever try and protect your backside, Bob? I had heard of this practice, but uh, never actually witnessed it. I recall doing something similar myself many, many years later while flying into Sarajevo where we threw all of our flak jackets into the windows instead of putting them on. These are the things you do for self-preservation, Bob. That's right. During these operations to Borneo, C-138 crews also had to contend with the fog of war and uncertain rules of engagement. To give you a sense of the air war, in early September 1964, three Indonesian C-130s set off from Jakarta for Malaysia to conduct a paratroop drop. They flew low to avoid detection by radar. One of the C-130s crashed into the Malacca Straits while trying to evade interception by an RAF javelin, which launched out of RAF Tenga. Bob, you've got your own story about javelins. Tell us what you know. Well, there's a couple there, actually. The uh, C-130 incident, we were actually at Changi in October 64. An aircraft part was recovered from the sea, and it turned out it was from the crashed Indonesian C-130 was, in fact, the flight deck escape hatch cover. As far as the javelins were concerned, we were transiting around the top end towards Malaysia when, out of virtually nowhere, two javelins appeared on either side of the aircraft. We assumed at the beginning that it was there to see us safely around the turning point, but we learned later that they had, in fact, been sent up to intercept us in case it was another Indonesian herc coming through. It's a good thing those fighter pilots didn't have itchy triggers. It's just as well they were on our side, at any rate, and recognized our aircraft. Exactly. There was another crew that was advised of inbound bogies, meaning Indonesian fighters, which were intercepted by RAF javelins. And that encounter was observed by the navigator on his APN-59 radar, which could detect the skin reflections. There was little the C-130As could do back then about air-to-air threats because they just weren't trained in those tactics. That training would happen in the 1970s and beyond, nor did they have any radar warning receiver to indicate the presence of a fighter aircraft. So, Bob, what do you reckon that escape hatch that they found, maybe the crew actually was still alive when they hit the water and tried to get out? What do you think? Well, it certainly appeared that way because the the hatch was fairly secure and uh, it would not actually fit through the escape hatch going out. So it had to have come out of the aircraft some other way. 
Yeah, I, I reckon you're right. Someone was still alive when they hit the water and they popped that hatch out to try and get out of the airplane. That's what I would appear. Aside from the direct threats during the conflict, the unknown sometimes reared its ugly head in the form of unpredictable conditions at destinations. So we'll talk about a few of those. For example, shortly after Confrontazzi began, Flight Lieutenant Frank Daniel and his crew were on a sea courier, which departed Richmond on the 25th of February, 1963. And they were retasked on the 1st of March to fly a resupply mission to the Australian Embassy in Jakarta. They faced aggressive Indonesian forces who forced them to disembark and kept weapons trained on them while embassy staff negotiated to have the aircraft unloaded. The threatening gestures continued so much that the crew feared for their safety and for the safety of their passengers. Tensions rose when, despite wanting to leave quickly, they discovered a serious unserviceability. They could see metal flakes in the hydraulic fluid and had no pressure in that hydraulic booster system. This indicated that they had a sheared hydraulic pump and were at risk of not having hydraulic pressure to operate their flight controls. Hydraulic booster systems were integrated into the flight control system to overcome aerodynamic forces and make steering and flying relatively easy. If both of the flight control hydraulic boost systems were inoperable, it would take both pilots using all their strength to control the aircraft. A repair would have taken days because the parts would have needed to come from Australia. So the crew, in those conditions, decided that once the C-130 was unloaded, they would just depart for Darwin with the unserviceability. Fortunately for them, the remaining boost system held together and they had hydraulics all the way. Bob, did you ever fly with an airplane that was unserviceable? On several occasions, we had to shut down an engine and fly for various reasons. But the C-130 was equipped with backup systems on all its various functions, even down to uh, winding down the landing gear if it had a malfunction in that area. Because of the uh, safety features built into the aircraft, we're always confident that we get home all right. I sure felt the same way, Bob, and I was always very happy to have four engines on those wings. It certainly was the way to go. They knew what they were doing when they built the old Hercules, Bob. A similar experience awaited Flight Lieutenant Massey and his co-pilot Peter Rags Blair Hickman in A97-216 on the 30th of April, 1963. Having just dropped off 10 squadron personnel at Sangley Point in the Philippines, they were diverted from the Philippines' Darwin trip to Jakarta with bags of rice. Rags recalled, and this is a quote, Upon arrival in Jakarta, the aircraft was surrounded by armed troops and we were told to wait on the sidelines, which we did under guard, whilst the troops ransacked the supplies. There was rice going in all directions, with the troops taking all they could carry and spilling a lot of it. When the aircraft was suitably plundered, we were allowed back on board. End quote. So, Bob, what was your recollection of what it was like to deal with Indonesians back then? You had a couple of experiences there in West Papua. Any, anything else you can add? As well as that one in West Papua, we were supporting the Pacific Island Regiment in Papua New Guinea, resupplying their forces along the border with West Syrian at places like Wanamo. The Indonesians were quite aggressive in those situations. Yeah, and it's a common story told by many people from that era. There were some other uncertain runway situations. For example, uncertain runway conditions sometimes plagued C-130A crews. One crew inserted a force into Lahad Datu, Malaysia, where the grass runway was saturated with rain, and they were lucky to avoid bogging and were able to get airborne again. Another crew landed on unknown runway conditions at Tawau, Malaysia. And Bob, you were on that crew. Tell us about it. Uh, we approached the field and uh, noticed that there was some damage around the area. 
that uh, the actual runway appeared to be in reasonable condition, so we continued and landed. And when we landed, we found there was quite a few areas that had been blasted by mortars. Apparently, it had happened the day before we arrived, and we had no idea that it had happened. So, Bob, before you went on these missions, did you get intelligence briefings at all? We did get some briefings, yes. And clearly, they didn't know about that mortaring, though. No. That just goes to show you that the conflict was real. In fact, that you had no way of knowing that they weren't going to mortar that airfield again the day you were there. That's correct. And in fact, uh, it wasn't uncommon at uh, Tuata before you could put the ramp of the aircraft on the ground that you had to make sure there was not spent cartridges that would damage the skin of the aircraft when it went down. Interesting. Never thought of that. That's true. Yeah, that would be an issue. Bob, did you get any recognition for your missions on Confrontazi? Well, even though we spent the time there, we didn't qualify for the British General Service Medal, which was uh, provided to the everybody who was based at Butterworth at the time. Because we're an Australian-based unit and not posted to Malaysia, we didn't qualify for that recognition. However, years later, we were recognised with the Malaysian Bar to our Active Service Medal and then the Malaysian PJM. Did you have to provide any evidence to show that you were there or did that Malaysia bar just show up in the mail one day? No, it was basically one that you had to advise that uh, you had served there. And so did you have to prove that through using your logbook? We had to do it with our logbooks, that's right. It's interesting, Bob, when you look through the historical record, most of these incidents and these flights weren't really well recorded or formally reported, especially some of those things that happened to you, for example, like the mortaring or having to deal with Indonesian forces. Because back in that era, the expectation was the crews just had to manage the fluid circumstances as best they could. And dealing with those sorts of situations was simply seen as doing the job. And that's why a lot of these stories only came to light many years afterwards. And that bar that you got came to light because someone, and I'll talk about that in a second here, put in a lot of effort to try and get recognition. So, Bob, do you recall talking about this sort of stuff back in those days, or did you just feel like you were doing your job and that's just how it was? We weren't looking for recognition in those days. We were just doing the job that we signed up to do. And I think that's the case for most people. It's, uh, the recognition comes afterwards and it's nice to have, but it's not what you're there for. I guess at the time, the only thing that probably did uh, stick in the craw a little was that the uh, even though we were there, the British General Service Medal didn't apply to our situation. Yeah, Bob, there was a fair bit of lack of recognition going on for 36 Squadron in a number of incidents and operations over those years. When I left the service, I did not have one campaign ribbon. Now I have uh, three of the active service, two overseas and long service in the BJM. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and all that happens because of people putting the effort in after the fact. Neither of those Dakar missions that I just mentioned were actually even detailed in the 36 Squadron unit history other than as a courier C. Can you believe this, Bob? Even the RAF's 2021 100th anniversary book did not mention C-130 involvement in Confrontazi. Talked about everyone else that was there, but not the C-130s. That's right. Well, Bob, resupply and aeromedical evacuation and repatriation flights in support of Confrontazi continued all the way through till late 1965, and I'm guessing you were involved all the way through till the end of that period. That's correct, yes. Uh, and those early air evacuation flights were quite daunting because they also had to come home via Cocos Island. Yes. That'd be a long flight for somebody with an injury, especially in a C-130. They were, and uh, for the uh, nursing sisters that travelled with us. 
And I'm going to cover that in more detail in a future episode, Bob, particularly when we talk about Australia's commitment to Vietnam. And in fact, all of Confrontazi was kind of like a warm-up for what happened later on when Australia committed heavily to Vietnam. Did you fly in Vietnam at all? Yes, I continued on in Vietnam. In fact, uh, those last years of confrontation, we were operating uh, one day into Borneo, one day into Vietnam, and one day up into uh, the communist insurgency in Thailand. We're in three theaters in three days. Interesting times, Bob. Very interesting. And I can tell you what, the squadron records back then, all it would have said is Butterworth Courier on the record. Yeah, and uh, Thailand was... U-Bond was point B. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if somebody thought they were being smart with that or that's just the way we looked at it. Just another stop on the way for a C-130. That was a, it was a political ploy to cover up the fact that we were there. Oh, very good. Interesting. I did not know that. Bob, as I mentioned, a lot of those acknowledgements of what 36 Squadron did came after the fact. And I want to acknowledge the efforts of Jack Fordyce, whose nickname was Jock. Do you know Jock? Yes, I flew with him quite a bit. Well, Jock was a flight engineer in those days, and he went to great lengths to prove that 36 Squadron had been involved in Confrontazi. If it wasn't for his work, there wouldn't have been any official recognition at all. Sadly, he was unable to convince authorities about the merits of individual recognition for all aircrew because a lot of the records were lost. And as you said, Bob, you had to prove through your logbook that you were even there because none of the Squadron records could do that. Bob, I'm going to wrap it up there. In the next episode, we'll take a look at training again, but in some more detail than we did in the earlier episode, and we'll cover the infamous upside-down spinning C-130 story. Bob, thanks for coming on The Workhorse and giving some context to a long-forgotten part of Australian and C-130 history. Not a worry. I'll take following your podcasts. I appreciate that. And thanks to all of you for listening. And if you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about The Workhorse podcast. You can find the Workhorse podcast on all the usual platforms and on my website, spartanspirit.au. That's all one word, Spartan Spirit. Have a good day. Bye.